we're going to continue in this little brief series I'm doing in Exodus uh, chapters 32, 33, and uh, looking at God's covenant with his people and how he deals with his people, uh, most particularly when they sin, but the hope that's there for us when we do sin. Uh, this, these passages serve both as uh, should serve, both as deterrent to our sin, uh, but also as, as, a, as a reminder to us that uh, sin is not the end. God is in the business of, of restoring us, forgiving us. And this passage reminds us of that again, what our sin is in actuality, and yet what God does in response to sin. So let's read verses 15 through 35. We looked at the first 14 verses last week. Now we pick up here. Then Moses turned. He's up on the mountain. You remember the context. Moses turned and went down the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf, And the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came the calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered round him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today, You've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, 
so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord, we thank you for your word. This is a sober passage. It's almost comical, and yet it's terribly sobering. It's easy for us to look back, Lord, to passages like this and think we would never do such a thing. And yet, we do. We ask your forgiveness even now before we begin as we look at this. We pray that just for these few moments we might we might grow in our hatred of sin and our love for you. We might see ourselves in this old covenant church because we look far too much like them far too often. So may we see ourselves and may we hate what we see and turn to the one who is our savior even Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. Well, last week, in those first 14 verses, we saw, very simply, two things. We saw the people turn to their their idolatry. And we talked about how easy it is for us to make idols. We can make idols of anything, everything. I was reminded this morning by someone that we can even make idols of our memories. That's something I hadn't thought about. I didn't say that last Sunday night, but apparently God did to someone's heart that even our memories can become idols that we turn aside from God to think about more often than we think of our God. And then we saw how Moses pictured for us the Lord Jesus Christ when he stood up and he interceded, he mediated between holy, holy, holy God on that mountain and unholy, 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 dot, 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 people down at the foot of the mountain while they're having a grand old time 
with their idols. And again, it's it's important that we not think, well, you know, gee, I don't have enough gold to make an idol. You know, I don't have enough to be an idol. Oh, but we can we can make idols of hardly nothing, right? Little of nothing. I mean, the widow that Jesus told us about, she could have made an idol of the might. But she didn't. She gave it to him because she knew it was his to start with. So you can make an idol of little or a lot. You can make an idol of your poverty, of your nothing. So let's not think that it's not possible for us to be idolaters. As we saw reading in Colossians last week, uh, our affections, our, our desires can be idols. So we saw their, their sin. We saw the sinful response they had to God. And we talked about briefly how that God had blessed these people. He brought them out of Egypt where they had been laboring and complaining because of all the heat, because of all the hard labor. They were slaves, remember? And then they get out in the wilderness and they complain, "Eh, maybe we were better off in Egypt. God fed them. He watered them. He gave them great promises and they complained. And now God has given them the law. Chapter 20, he's provided for them, codified for them what was written on the heart but is easy to become kind of blurry because our hearts can grow hard, right? We know all these things. You shall have no other gods before you. Not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't make images and certainly don't worship them. Keep the Lord's day holy. Honor your father and mother and on and on it goes. And yet they can kind of get out of sight. And so God said, I'm going to put it right here to where you you got to look at it all the time. And here they are. They make this idol. The Puritans had a uh, had a little a little way of talking about this, uh, and it was called will worship. Will W I L L. In other words, worshiping that which you will, your preference. Moses, if you remember last week, he couldn't even see. He didn't know what was going on. God's the one who, who, who knew what was going on because God's omnipresent and all-knowing. He knew what was going on down there. He could hear and he could, we're told, he could see it because he sees all things, though he doesn't have eyes like a man. 
Moses doesn't know what's going on. God just says they're doing this horrible thing down there and Moses intercedes. He mediates. Now the scene shifts and Moses is coming down. Joshua has been waiting for him halfway up the mountain. If you remember, if you go back and read earlier, God specifically said, tell the people, don't come up here. You can take Joshua with you part of the way, but that's, that's it. Because had the people gone up, they'd seen the glory of God, they would have died. God was merciful to them. He was acting out of his love for them to stay down there. And in the midst of him loving them like that, they did what they did. They wanted another God. Well, the title of the sermon is taken right out of the text, as you probably noticed. Verse 26, when Moses gets down there and he says, who's on the Lord's side? And those who responded were the Levites. The sons of Levi, they gathered around him. They said, we're on, we're on the Lord's side. So the question here tonight is, it's a haunting question here in the middle of this literary section. And that is the question to us, who's on the Lord's side? Are you on the Lord's side? Are you on your side? The word, the world, the flesh, the devil, or the Lord's side. So that's the question that's hanging out there for us. First thing I want us to see is what sin is. Sin is covenant treason. Sin is covenant treason. The people sinned in breaking the first commandment. They wanted a God, but they didn't want the God that Moses was communing with. They wanted a God. They didn't know about this man, Moses, if he'd ever come back down. We want a God. Then they broke the second commandment. They made a God in their image. Then they took the name of the Lord in vain. They said, that's our Lord right there. Remember, we saw that last week when they say it, the word Lord there. Aaron made it and he made a proclamation. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, Jehovah. A golden calf took the name of the sovereign God. So right there, that easily, that quickly broke the first three commandments. We could throw in a whole bunch more. They were bearing false witness. They were coveting. They were stealing. They were killing. They were committing adultery, spiritual adultery. They broke all ten, but the first three are real obvious to us. They committed covenant treason. And it's seen... In those first verses, 
that I read to you. Moses turned, went down the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. So there he has. He's got the law. All this good stuff God's given him. He's taken it down. Both sides have been written. God had inscribed. The writing was writing of God and engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said Moses, uh, to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory, the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands, broke them at the foot of the mountain. We're going to stop there for a moment. There's, there's the covenant. The covenant is inscribed. God has put in writing, this is mine. This is what I'm saying. I'm binding myself to you. In these words, Moses gets down there and after he has mediated for them up on the mountain. Now, did you notice something? If we'd, if we'd read the first 14 verses, it would have been perfectly clear to you. But here's what you read back in those first verses. And we, so Aaron uh, has made the golden calf. And then we see the Lord says to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf. They've worshiped it and they've sacrificed to it. And they've said, these are your gods, O Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. Now, Moses, after he's interceded, oh, Lord, please, don't do this. God promises to relent. He goes down, Moses goes down, and he gets down there, and remember, he's mediating. He's the mediator. We're seeing both man and God in Moses. He's the one who's pointing us to Jesus Christ, the mediator, the man Jesus Christ, who mediates between God and man. And what do we see? He comes down, he sees it, and his anger burned hot. All of a sudden, he's thinking God's thoughts and he's yeah, we, we don't like we don't talk this way and it's not the best way but I'm going to say it and you're going to take it the right way he felt God's feelings he had God's emotions if you will again we're speaking anthropomorphically here because Moses changed his tune on this God didn't change God doesn't change he's never changing but all of a sudden, Moses had the same response to sin that God had to sin. And his anger burned. Now, I want to stop and ask a question. This is a convicting question. And the answer may be even more convicting to you. When we see sin, are we angry about it? I'm talking about righteously angry. Moses was because he's angry about it like God was. 
I'm going to tell you that usually when we see sin, our response is, I'm glad I'm not the only one that does that. Or, yeah, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. It just seems to get worse. But then we're, that's like the end of our thought. Instead of thinking, oh, that's awful. I'm repulsed by that. That makes me sick to my stomach. How much like that am I? Do I do those things? And am am I not even conscious that I'm sinning like that? That's how we should think. Instead of just forgiving ourselves. And passing right on to the next thing and saying, oh. Or, or maybe, maybe we're so righteous that we've deluded ourselves and we act like the Pharisee. Remember the Pharisee looked at the publican and he said, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that man. And so we deny that we're capable of sinning. You know, when we have terrible things happen, like the shooting in Texas, you hear some strange things said. I'm so thankful my kids would never do anything like that. Well, they could. Wickedness is bound up in the heart of a child. Foolishness, wickedness. Not just the heart of a child, but the heart of adults. So we look at passages like this and, and we think, my goodness, I could do that. I may be doing that and not even be conscious of that. And so we ask and we pray, Lord, would you convict me? Would your spirit reveal to me these sins? And so we read on. Moses goes down to the foot of the mountain and he's angry, righteous indignation. And what does he do? He threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now you're not going to find God rebuking Moses for that anywhere in the Bible. We would think, oh my, Moses, you shouldn't have done that. But Moses was making a point. And you noticed he waited till he got down. God already told him what they were doing down there. That's the reason he mediated for them back up in those earlier verses. And now he gets down there and he waits till he gets down there. And when he sees it, it's worse than he could even imagine. And he throws the tablets and they break. And every good commentator makes this point. Moses is symbolically doing to the covenant document what the people have done in building the calf and worshiping it. They have broken covenant. So Moses symbolizes right there before them. The breaking of the covenant. They have sinned and what they have done in sinning is they have broken 
the covenant with God. They have they have become covenant breakers. Now, you see something of the love of God in this. You say, really? Doesn't look like love to me. Well, God knew what was going on down there. He could have said to Moses, hey, Moses, uh, leave the tablets up here. Those people don't deserve these tablets. Not right now. But in sending Moses down with the tablets, it provided the opportunity then for Moses to visibly portray before them their sin. You've broken covenant with God. You're violating everything God has taught you. You've shattered this relationship that God has with you and you have with God. This is serious business. Then notice too what happens. As soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf, the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands. He broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made. He burned it with fire and ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. What's that about? He's saying he's making these people own their sin. You have to own your own sin. This is who you are. This sin is in you. This is not something external to you. You can't look at that calf and just think, well, that's, you know. No, this is who you are. Just like this, now that you're drinking it, is now in you. That's who you are. That's where that sin came from. It came from down here. No one's to blame but you because it was in your heart. And now it's going back in. Sin is breaking covenant with God. We're bound to God. We're united to God. And yet, we can act just like these people. Second thing, notice what the remedy is. That's in verses 25 through 29. Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. There, the whole issue of now everybody who sees this is making a mockery of God. This is, this is the people God brought out of Egypt. This is the God, that calf right there. That's the God that they say opened the sea up for them. That's the God who's given them manna. That's the God who gave them drink. That's the God who, who protects them by pillars of cloud at day and, and fire at night. What? That God? You can imagine. They had, a, they had a great time with that one. So Moses throws that in to remind us that our sin doesn't just affect us. It brings, it brings 
problems for God's name out in the public. So, we continue in verse 25. Verse 26, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. All the sons of Levi gathered round him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your right on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. Each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So the first thing we see as the remedy here to this covenant treason is repentance. Who's on the Lord's side? And you've got the Levites come. They turn from what they were doing and they come to the side of Moses. They step up. They own their offense. They acknowledge that they're going to follow the Lord no matter what. And notice what it brings with it. Just skip to the next verse. It's easy to get caught up in those details in between. But skip to the last verse in that paragraph. Verse 29. So that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Now I'm going to tell you. The repentance. That was a tough bit of repenting. Did you, did you listen again as I read? Part of the repenting was to bring to an end the lives of those who had been part of their sin. Now we could... We, yeah. The liberals, liberal theologians have a heyday with this. What kind of God is that that tells men to go... I mean, they were all equally guilty, and those 3,000 men die because God said to do it, and what, that's the kind of God you want? Well, that's not the point, is it? The point is, those men deserve to die, just like you and I deserve to die. Sin deserves God's wrath. And God exhibits his wrath here. But the remarkable part of this story is not the 3,000 who died, but that he spared the Levites, the sons of Levi. And there were more than 3,000. I was just told the other day, I happen to know what you did one Wednesday night, Bradley, while I was away, and it was to talk about how many millions of people we're talking about here who had been brought out of Egypt and through the sea and were living as nomads out in the wilderness. We're talking about millions. You compare millions to 3,000? You don't have nearly as strong a case as the liberals think they have for such a, 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 a bad God. The fact is, every single person of those multitudes of millions deserved to die that day because we don't have any evidence that they weren't all complicit to this. But as as an act of judgment 
and to serve as a deterrent for future idolatry like this, God exercised his justice, and his justice fell upon a mere 3,000 men as symbolic of this is what you all deserved today. And yet the sons of Levi were blessed because they did the hard work of repentance. Repenting is not easy, folks. Turning from your wicked ways are not, is not easy. And these people did. Being on the Lord's side is not always easy. It's not always popular. It means dealing with sin in your own life and in the life of other people. If we love one another, we have to do that. I've said this before, but I'm so thankful as one of the elders of this church who just happens to have the privilege of standing up here and preaching most Sundays. I have the privilege of working with these godly men who are your elders. And I more than once in my 14 years here, they've one or more of them have had to come and say, you know what, you were wrong. You shouldn't have said it that way. You shouldn't have done that. And I'm thankful. And you should be thankful that you have elders who will call you to repentance and call you to do hard things. Because I'm telling you, the way of the world is the easy path, the path of least resistance, right? The world's not going to bother with you about your wicked ways. They like that because you confirm them and their wicked ways when you live wicked as well God requires repentance and that repentance is tough dealing with sins of others is vividly portrayed here in this slaying of the guilty covenant breakers then finally notice the covenant faithfulness reality of covenant faithfulness In those last verses, verses 30 and following, the next day Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, the angel, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. I didn't even comment on Aaron's silliness. I heard some some low-sounding chuckle when I read that earlier. You remember what Aaron said, how irrational Aaron was? I took that gold and I threw it in the fire and whoo, a calf popped out. He sounded kind of like Adam, but it was the woman. You know... Our sin's always somebody else's fault. But God now tells us in these last verses that there's atonement for sin. And that's what our Lord did. Again, Moses picturing our Lord Jesus Christ. 
making satisfaction for our sins. But notice the consequences of sin are still there. Even though we may be forgiven, and atonement brings forgiveness, consequences don't go away. We can just illustrate that simply. An unmarried couple, a child is conceived. That was sinful because God says that it's a man and a woman together, married, in union, covenantal union, and they're then to multiply and have children. That's the biblical way. If you're having premarital relations, that's sin. So you repent of that. You come to realize that and you say, we're not going to do that anymore. But in the meantime, a child is conceived. Well, the consequences of your sin are the child. You say, whoa, hadn't thought about it that way. Children are a blessing. Well, yeah, it's complicated. Sin complicates matters. But aren't you, God, aren't you glad that God forgives even though the consequences may still remain? We've all done things. We've asked the Lord for forgiveness and he's forgiven us again. And that peace that passes understanding has come across uh, upon our hearts and souls. And yet there's still some consequences to it. We may have to go and apologize and it's a tough apology. We may have to go and and. and give retribution to someone that we've stolen something from. We have to own up to what we've done. And yet the peace of God is there with us while we're doing this hard repenting. And that's what this last passage is about. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses goes and God says, yes, I'll forgive their sin. Notice do you notice Paul sounds a lot like Moses here? Remember where Paul says, if I could, I would give myself for my people in Romans chapter 9. My people are sinful people. They've denied the Messiah. If I could, I would, I would die for them, take their place so that they might not have their names blotted out. But of course, Paul knew he couldn't. Moses knew he couldn't stand in their place, but he's doing that symbolically because Jesus Christ could come and did come and could stand in our place. And he could take our sins and he could have our sins blotted out. Something Moses couldn't do fully, but he made this symbolic effort and gesture to picture for us our Lord Jesus Christ who saved sinners that their names not be blotted out of the book of life. So, we've seen again, our sin is horrible. It's egregious, it's heinous, it's against God, it's a covenant breaking. We saw it symbolized in the breaking of the tablets. We've seen it requires repentance. We saw that all through the book of Hosea just in recent weeks. God's threat of judgment and even those occasional 
exercising of judgments against the people were intended to bring his people to repentance. And once again, repentance is a call here. And God's faithfulness to himself to repay sinners. But also, his provision. The atonement that takes the sin of the people away and cast it as far as the east is from the west. Aren't you glad that when we sin, as egregious as this sin is, there's a lot of forgiveness in this passage, isn't there? Millions, apparently, were the recipients of God's forgiveness. That's remarkable. A few thousand unrepentant. Don't be among those. Be of those who repent and receive the blessing that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. For his glory may that be. Father, thank you. And I ask now that you'd hear our prayer that we would hate sin, that we'd avoid sin, and that we would taste the wonderful forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.